Before we start today's episode, I wanted to let you all know that Quiet Connection is now on Patreon. With three membership options to choose from, you can expect things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and goodies in the mail once a month. Check out our Patreon site or our website to sign up. And thanks for helping us continue to create content and spread awareness about postpartum mental health. Hi, welcome to Quiet Connection, a podcast dedicated to ending the stigma around postpartum mental health. I'm Chelsea. In this episode, we hear from Leah, who shares her experiences with attachment-style parenting and how it has benefited her confidence as a mother. Let's hear from Leah. Hello, I am here today with Leah. Hi, Leah. Hi, Chelsea. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing this morning? I am really good, actually. That's so good. We're right on the cusp of Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. So hopefully you're gearing up for that. And hopefully your family has something nice planned for you. I think so. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's nice to have a little surprise sometimes. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So let me think. I live in Rhode Island and I live in a sort of, I don't know, nondescript burb of Providence. Um, and I have three children. I have a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a six-month-old. Wow. Yeah, quite the gap. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my older children are boys and uh, from a previous marriage. And my daughter, my six-month-old, uh, is from uh, my husband and I. And uh, we typically don't distinguish that, you know, like, like oh, these are the other kids. You know, we don't do that. But, yeah. but, you know, for the purposes of the podcast, it seems relevant. But uh, yeah, that's, that's us. I'm a clinical mental health counselor in training. So I have one year to go before I get my provisional license. Uh, but I do take people now under supervision, both virtually and in person. And awesome. I largely work with kids and moms. New moms are really a focus. I haven't gotten as many new moms as I'd like, but I'm, you know, I'm still sort of nascent in, uh, in my work. So I'll get there. And I have a previous career in uh, higher education administration. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I really enjoyed that work. It was really hard to find something in my field in Rhode Island um, after my divorce. So, you know, I kind of had to pivot and think about what I could do and where I could make an impact and what would be family friendly. Mm-hmm. And that's where I came into um counseling and I've just fallen in love with it. It's been a really cool journey so far. That's really cool. I'm so glad that you found something you could be passionate about. Yeah, me too. Yeah. (laughs) What are some things that that sort of fill your cup? What do you like to do outside of being a mom? Nobody ever asks moms that. So thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to think of an answer. No, not for me. I like to good. I you love like to, to garden. You garden. Mm-hmm. I'm no I'm no expert, but I'm very much an enthusiast. I love to garden. I am very much at home puttering around in my yard. That's that's where I'm happy. <laughs> You're the total opposite of me. I have a total brown thumb and I kill everything no. I touch. No, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Where 
are you located out of? I don't actually know. I am in Vermont. <gasps> no, you're not. I That's am. where I went and got my first graduate degree. I love Vermont. I plan on moving back there in a few years. Yeah, it's I, I'm a native Vermonter. So jelly. <laughs> I'm like a true Vermonter too. I'm like several, several generations back. So it's wow. expensive to live here, but really? Is. But I, I, I don't think I, I don't think I'd make it anywhere else. I love it here. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I'm eking it out here, but I'm, I'm waiting as soon as, uh, the only reason I don't currently live there is because, uh, there was a sort of a custody dispute and my, um, ex-husband and co-parent was like, Hey, you know, I really want you here cause I'm here and that's the way the judge saw it. So here we are. But yeah. yeah, the minute the minute that they're safely ensconced in their post secondary plan, <laughs> they know we're 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 all packing up together, and their bedrooms will be beautifully recreated somewhere <laughs> in Vermont. So, where in Vermont are you? Um, I am in, which is um, northern Vermont. So, um, yeah, I love yeah. it here. That's a small world. Little connection. Where did you get? Um, you said you got one of your graduate degrees here. Yeah, my first one, um, I got a Master of Education from UVM, and that was where I did uh, higher ed admin. And I actually interned at one point at BFA St. Albans, which um, was so much fun. And I lived there at another point briefly for three years and worked for the Agency of Education and Rope Policy for K-12. So That's that very, very cool. Yeah. My husband works at UVM. Hey. And I was a special educator. I worked in in special ed for 10 years before I had my youngest. So lots of little connections. It's a very small world. I think people forget that we are very much connected by probably a, maybe a few relationships. And there it it's is. Like, what is that thing? It's like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon or something like that. Yeah. Like everybody's connected. I love but, it. Yeah, that's so cool. So, okay, so you like to garden, mm-hmm. and that that makes you happy. This question I, I tend to ask everybody, who were you before you were a mom? I was not going to be a mom. You were not? All. Oh, no. Okay. And I, you know, honestly, the only reason I'm answering this question is because we're in this format, but and, and I know the audience, mm-hmm. but when, when I don't know the audience, I'm very hesitant because... What I end up saying is the truth, which is that I did not want children. And my kids know this because I've said, which sounds horrible, but it's not. I tell them, I'm like, you're the biggest surprises of my life. Mm. Like, you want to talk about a surprise party times 1,000? Each of you was that. (laughs) Just like, I said, so don't don't close yourself off to um, possibility. It's one thing to say, this is what I want and this is what I want to do. And I support whatever that is. But if you get surprised, please roll with it. Try to. Try to roll with the surprise if you can. And, you know, I'll help you with that, too, if that's the case. But, you know, I've always been a rebel, not like a cool rebel, like (laughs) rebel in a principal's office kind of rebel, like dunce cap cap rebel, you know, like, (laughs) so I ask too many questions. I challenge authority. I don't do things the way I'm supposed to, et cetera, et cetera. But, um. Yeah, I was I was working in higher ed doing career counseling and probably drinking too much, I'd say. Mm. Definitely drinking too much. But I was having a lot of fun. And hanging out with my girlfriends was very much part of my life. Uh, I loved to go out to fancy bars. 
mm. with my friends. Um, which in hindsight is like, oh my God, you and your disposable income. <laughs> <laughs> I love thrift shopping, um, but like not thrift shopping where you're like, oh, I'm going to buy 10 t-shirts for the price of two, but like, oh my goodness, these are opera length kid skin uh, gloves that I'm going to wear with that fabulous dress the next time I go out. That- uh, you went like vintage shopping. like Oh yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I look back at photos and I'm like, that's how it's done. <laughs> I- I definitely feel like I uh, had a lot of fun uh, doing that. I was always very artistic, um, but not like formally trained. I went to school originally at Emerson College in Boston for musical theater performance, which was very, very competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sang and acted and danced. I'm a, I'm a good singer. I'm a fair actor and I'm a miserable dancer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I ran out of money. I ran out of money and, uh, I wanted to stay and I had too many jobs. And in the end I took a scholarship, um, that I was still luckily being offered at my state school in Rhode Island and switched my major to English, which (laughs) I thought was very practical. Maybe compared Um, to musical theater was practical, but I got a BA in English in 2008. So you tell me how practical. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh -uh. Seems, seemed like a good idea at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Actually, it worked out for me, you know, it did. And I'm, I'm lucky. And I only that's all that was was luck. But Mm. yeah, so so who I was, uh, worked with students, always loved working with first generation college students, Mm -hmm. um, women, underserved communities. um, Yeah, and I just spent a lot of time with my friends going out. I was I did really didn't want to have a domestic life. The whole thing just looked absolutely unappealing. Yeah. You know, if someone told me about oxytocin, I think I, I would have, I would have been receptive to that conversation. I'd been like, I'm sorry, what? You get what? What happened? <laughs> Interesting. Uh-huh. So you were living your best life. Oh, yeah. And then you kind of had some surprises. Tell me a little bit about that. I was at a professional conference in Phoenix, Arizona for NASPA. National Association of Student Personnel Administrators, folks who work in colleges. Mm-hmm. And it's a big deal. And when it happens, you go to all of these workshops that are super interesting. And you're like, I mean, if you're nerdy into this stuff, you're like, this is amazing. You're having such a great time all day. You're also miserably hungover because every night you're connecting with all of your friends from graduate school who scattered to the winds and you're partying like an animal. <laughs> And that's what you do at NASPA. And that's fine. And you wear your sunglasses and drink your Gatorade dutifully during the day. And you write notes because you're enjoying every minute of it. Mm -hmm. And it was my fourth conference, I think. And at that conference, I went to bed at like 10, 11 o'clock. And my roommate, who was a friend, was like, I remember she packed tequila. We're in Arizona. You can get tequila here, Colleen. There's, there is. They like they sell it. I guarantee you. But she packed her tequila and checked that bag. She didn't want to. I don't know. Have to struggle with transportation. She wanted it right there at the hotel because we were gonna make margaritas. Damn it! And I got in and was like, "Ooh, yeah, I'm gonna have to take a pass." Mm. It's like, who are you? I said, "I'm tired. I don't know." It was a long flight. But then the next night, I felt the same way. 
And then I started drinking smoothies. Mm. I didn't drink smoothies much. At least I didn't then. And I was like, that's all I wanted. I wanted fresh fruit and smoothies. That's all like, I was just craving them horribly. And then it was just odd. It's just when it was my fourth conference and you stay out all damn night, like it just, it didn't sit right, but whatever. Maybe it was just, I don't, I don't like desert. So it could have been that. Who knows? I wasn't, you know, I wasn't hearing hooves thinking zebras. <laughs> but anyway, I had a, a, a red eye flight back to Boston and I get into Logan airport and I had a miserable flight. I couldn't sleep. My stomach was churning finally get in and the first thing I do out of the gate was I just heaved my upper half into a trash can and oh, just, no. just the whole half of me just folded into it and you can figure that out I got on the the tee and called my boss and said yeah I'm not coming in today and he was like you promised you'd be at this career fair and do this thing and blah 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 long story short uh I was pregnant mm. I didn't think I could get pregnant I was not married at the time, and I looked at my partner, and he was overjoyed, and I was horrified. But, you know, I had that moment where I looked in the mirror after you see the, whatever it is, the two lines, the one line. Yeah, two lines. And it was like in the Santa Claus. (laughs) I said, I'm in big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in big trouble. I was living in a third floor walk-up in Providence, you know? Mm. It wasn't a place for a baby. Mm. How did that how so you said I'm in big trouble. How did you what did you make of that? I did the only thing that I could think to do that made sense at the time, which is um it sounds horrible in my head, but it's it's the truth. I bargained. Okay. Not with God. It wasn't like if you do this for me, like it, no, I I bargained with my partner. I was like, "Listen, all right, all right. I know how badly you want children. I know you want children. This is important to you." I said, believe it or not, I'm actually considering this. I maybe this could be okay. But but let's let's not get ahead of ourselves here because I don't want to just do this. I'm not, I mean, I I I grew up with a single mom who struggled, uh, mainly because I had a father who didn't pay child support. So there's mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You know, but she worked hard. I mean, she she definitely was doing her very best. But, you know, it's tough out there. And yeah. Then I went into foster care when I was 13. So, like, I know what deprivation can look like in different iterations. And I do not want to be a single mom. I am not interested in that life. I am not interested in struggling anymore. And it's not to say every single mom struggles. All of the disclaimers, the people I respect the most are single moms. Mm. I can't do it. I can't hack it. And the people say, well, you don't know you can until you... Yes, 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 I know. If I had to, I would figure it out. But I am going to do everything in my human power to prevent that. Because that's literally the scariest... That's my scary. That's my scary. You knew that about yourself. Oh, yeah. And so I was like, look, I know what protective factors are. Okay, protective factors, for those who don't know, are um, kind of these, these elements of your life that can act as insulation against risks that could otherwise kind of tear your life apart, throw you into poverty, throw you into the prison system, any number of things. And I said, all right, look, I don't want to rent. Let's buy a house. I don't care how small it is. It could be a tiny house. I don't give a shit. Can we just buy a house? I want to know that we buy a house. I want to know that out of Providence, I wasn't comfortable 
living where I was living. Mm-hmm. I'd like us to get married. We were already talking about getting married. That wasn't like, we were just kind of taking a circuitous route. But I said, those two things have to happen. I said, like, you need to agree that we're doing this. Mm-hmm. I said, and finally, I need to know that I don't have to work because I have no idea how I'm going to want to play this. And I don't want to have to be ripped away from a baby if I don't have to be. Mm-hmm. I said, so we're going to have to scale our entire life on your income. And that places a lot of pressure and burden on you. Can you do that? He was like, yes, 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 yes. Because mm, he really wanted that baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once I knew those safeguards were in place, I could let my guard down and enjoy it. And it was terrifying because it's always terrifying. But it was like I'd never actually been like, oh, if I have a baby, this is what it's going to be like. I didn't know. (laughs) Right. You didn't picture your life with a baby. I had no idea what I was doing. And so that's what we did. In like six weeks, that's what we did. Wow. Yeah. No, he was he was in that particular context. He was very much a man of his word. In that six weeks, that all went down. Wow. We got married. We bought a small home that was based on his income alone. Okay. We structured everything. I ended up leaving my job um, because I was getting sick all the time. And the commute from Providence to Boston, I worked in Boston at the time, was just miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and we moved into that little house and, you know, things happen. We were not uh, we were we were happy for a few years and then we weren't and he's still my co-parent so it's important that I respect his privacy mm-hmm. uh, but we both moved on and uh you know we both own new homes and have remarried and he seems happy and I know I'm happy and that's worked out uh in that way certainly not perfect but um nothing ever is no but that's that was that was what that transition looked like, and yeah, I uh, I ended up staying home for. F- well, I I so I I did get a job after I had the baby, for a year. I worked full time for a year for a nonprofit, and then I did that, and then I found out I was pregnant again, and I, I was such an idiot. I was at the <laughs> I'm at the OB's office and. I said, "You're gonna have a baby," and I said, "And I was actually there for Marina." Oh. <laughs> I said, no, that's not possible. I already have a baby because I really like it just, I didn't think about these things. They were not part of my life. And they were like, no, 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 you're, you're going to have a baby. I was like, no, but I have one at home. (laughs) They're like, you're going to have a second one. I'm like, you can do it that fast. And they're like, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause they're, they're what? They're like a year apart. 16 months. Yeah. Wow. They're best friends and worst enemies. You know, I can imagine. I grew up as an only child, so I don't. I don't know how any of that works, but it's wild to see them figure it out. And I was, ter- I, I, you know, in hindsight, I was not very kind to my firstborn in how I introduced him to his brother. There's all these books, like how to tell your child that they're not alone anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't read any of it. And I really should have because I brought the baby home and my 16 month old is looking at me like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. So I gaslit my kid and I just said, you know, Asher. 
your brother. And he was like, no, I, I don't. And I was like, no, come on. You know Asher. And he just looks at me. He's like, are you, are you sure? I'm like, you must have forgotten. And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, hey, what's up, buddy? And he just went with it like that. And all my friends were like, you're horrible. Well, you did what you thought. You did You did what you thought you needed to do. Yeah, not my proudest moment. I should have read a thing, something. Should have read a thing. He didn't remember what he had for dinner the night before. How many times was I going to have that talk with him until it <laughs> stuck? You know, I didn't have time for that. I just, you know, he didn't understand. So he, and he went with it. He was just like, all right, yeah, hey, what's up, buddy? Like, it's just. Yeah. And he just had a little friend ever since. You could say that. Worst enemy friend, yeah. <laughs> They're, I'm assuming they're uh, they're at quite a fun age right now. My oldest is seven, but I cannot imagine having a nine and ten year old. Seven yeah. is quite enough sass for me right now. Ooh, you're getting some sass. Oh, I'm getting quite a bit of sass. Yeah. What's that look like? Um, well, uh, I am raising two very strong, independent women, and I'm so proud of that. But it also means that. She, um, my oldest feels very comfortable being strong and independent to me and my, and my partner. So rather than things, everything sort of being easy, a lot of things are a fight or a challenge because she wants to understand why. And, and that's great. Um, but sometimes the reason is because it's bedtime or sometimes (laughs) the reason is, because I'm exhausted. <laughs> and um, so that's been a challenge. But I do not have um, the privilege of, of raising boys. I always pictured myself as being a boy mom. What's that like? And I don't love, I ju- I'll, I'll preface this, I am not a gender subscribing individual. Um, I identify as non-binary. Mm-hmm. But I always sort of pictured my life as having boys. So I'm always very, very curious mm-hmm. what that is like. Well, I think what what's scary for me is anytime I hear any kind of rhetoric around violence, even if it's age appropriate, even if it's cultural context appropriate, I'm raising white men. Yeah. What are they going to be like? Are they going to be willing and able to exist in a vulnerable space instead of raging out? Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a certain segment of your listeners hearing this are immediately like tightening up a little bit because what's wrong with white men? nothing wrong inherently with white men we know that Mm -hmm. what's wrong is that there's a culture that doesn't let them feel and so they lash out a lot of times and that can be really damaging it can be damaging to women it can be damaging to people of color it can be damaging to non-binary people indigenous people it can be damaging to anyone who doesn't look talk sound or come from the same background because different is bad yeah and that's not okay and so you know i like one of my kids, I'm not going to say which, but at one point, one of my kids was like, I don't like black people. Hmm. And just said that in line at Target. And I looked down <laughs> at him. At Target. You know, and I looked down at him and I was like, I'm sorry. Did you just say you don't? He's like, yeah, I don't like black people. I said, why? And he goes, 
because, you know, they're dark. And I said, and you can't see them coming at night? What are you afraid of? I said, they're fine. What's wrong with black people? And he goes, well, they're just weird. I said, let's unpack that in the car. Can in the car, that? please. Yeah. <laughs> and in the car, he just explained, like, you know, the more he talked about it, the more it became clear that he didn't know any black people. And yeah. when he did see a black person, he was afraid. And he turned that fear into, well, I don't like you. Mm. And that, for me, felt like the beginning of a decision. And I was like, nope, 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 nope. So, like, it became Black History Month in our house. And I don't know that that actually helped. And I, you know, I know that having friends of color and friends from different backgrounds than me makes a big difference. What am I going to do? Call them up and be like, hey, so we haven't seen each other in a long time. Can I tokenize your children? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. So, you know, and I, I, so, so figuring out what exactly that is going to look like to give my kids a practical education in supporting people and not thinking of themselves as better or safer or more familiar because of skin color. I'm not amazing with that. That's I'm a not- really that's a really really interesting take though. That's not where I thought the answer to that question would go and I kind of I kind of love that. You have to really think about who your boys are going to be in the world because of the inherent position they were born into just being born white males right yeah right one of the things that can be helpful i think is leveraging the fact that we're jewish um, okay to remind them of you know the fact that there are people who think that we're different and wrong and unfamiliar and frightening and you know what is what does that feel like you know it gives them an opportunity to at least exist in that space of other and try and think that through. But I still don't know that it's enough for them to really get their potential impact in the world. And then, you know, you have to, (laughs) the very, the very Jewish thing then is to do the Tevye and look up at God and say, well, on the other hand, (laughs) and on the other hand, I'm thinking about these things during their childhood, their innocent years. And then I say to myself, well, on the other hand, the other moms I know of children of color, they're afraid for their kids because they don't know how their kids are going to be received into this world or worse, they do know. And they're terrified. And it's because I would stick my head in the sand, maybe, and not um, be extremely mindful of how raising my boys impacts their beautiful babies. So... I go back and forth in that conversation. Be present for their childhood. Be present for their childhood. No, teach them the hard things. Teach them the hard things. Don't walk away from that. Don't shy away from that. And so that's what's hard about raising boys. What's for me? Yeah. What's cool about raising boys? Hmm. When it works. When it works. Yeah. When I see my middle child... Be very gentle with younger children and animals. And I praise the crap out of him (laughs) and tell him how proud I am, how much I love that part of him and how I think that that's incredible and beautiful and worthy and valuable. 
like all parts, but you know, that in particular, I really want to highlight, Yeah. Uh, you know, when I see my older son ask probing questions and not take something at face value, you know, um, it's cool to see any child discover new things. Yeah. You know, the moment they see the ocean, I don't know that that's a, a boy mom thing. That's just a mom thing. Um, it's cool to be there and understand that they might fall in love with someone who's not explicitly a woman mm-hmm. and to be there for that and to get to be the person they need to say, I'm glad you have affection for someone. I'm glad that you admire them. And, you know, someday when they're old enough, you know, I'm glad that you're falling in love. I hope that you are thinking through how you want to be treated and how you want to be a good partner. You know, it's cool to get to be there for that. Um, It's cool to support things that are not necessarily traditionally male. And then it's cool to be there for stuff when they want to, you know, be like, I'm going to do offense on the team. <laughs> I don't know. They're very brave, these guys, these particular ones. I mean, mine, they're, they just hurl themselves into stuff. I have one right now who's like, I'm going to do tennis. And I was like, cool, let's do it. Cool. And I've, I realized that I've always wanted to learn tennis. And so I said to him, I was like, will you teach me tennis? And he goes, yeah, sure, whatever. And I'm like, you will? <laughs> And now I'm like, yeah, two for the price of one. Look at that. Two lessons. So now I'm getting him a racket, getting myself a racket. And I'm like, this is cool. But it's not a boy thing. That's not a boy thing. That's just a my kid thing, you know? Well, So I don't know. What's so cool to me in hearing this is going from the beginning of our conversation where you had said mm. so adamantly you mm-hmm. did not want kids. You did not picture yourself as a mom. And mm-hmm. to hear how mindfully and how intentionally you are raising your kids and sounding <laughs> like you enjoy it. Oh, I do. Um, So that's that's just that's very cool because it doesn't always turn out that way. So it's it's. Yeah, that's cool to sort of hear about that transformation. And now you've got you've got a little one. <laughs> yeah. I'm in her nursery now. It's the only quiet room in the house. That so <laughs> I'm in the kids playroom. So <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um so totally totally get that. But um what's it like starting kind of starting over again after 9 years? Mm, terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do not possess the same body. I do not possess the same resilience. I do not possess the same inexperience. I do not possess the same fears. Um, I'm a much more chill parent and I have a very different partner. Um, and partnering with him is just absolute joy. We are having so much fun. Oh, every good. morning. Yeah, no, we're having such a good time. It's stupid. Like we're stupid. <laughs> we're stupid. We're just like, this is great. This is this is fantastic. Um, seeing the boys uh, interact with their little sister. One is completely apathetic. You know, he's helpful. He'll do whatever, you know, hey, can you grab her toy? She dropped it, whatever. And then the other one's like, can I hold her? 
can I teach her this? You know, it's just, oh my gosh, you know? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's definitely different. Um, I think my mother-in-law was, I don't know. I, I, I explained my particular approach to parenting young children is attachment parenting. And I think that, you know, that was new for her. Um, I tried to be as, um, supportive of, of helping her learn in a respectful, kind way. You know, she, she was much more of a, like, go back to work quickly kind of person. And, and I think that, I, I don't know that that was circumstantial or chosen. That could have been a combination of both. You know, that's, there's a lot of privilege inherent in that statement. You know, I think I've just gotten really lucky. Um, she's been tremendously helpful. Um, I'm not close with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, foster care and no one stepping up kind of does that for me. Yeah. So I have a lot of chosen family. Which is amazing. Chosen family, chosen family can be um, even more important to us than our given family. Yeah, they've they've really stepped up. I've been, you know, it's I'm part of a tremendous community of moms in Rhode Island. It's and Vermont actually. So <laughs> I have a lot of Vermont friends, mom mom friends. Now I have a new one. There so. you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I know when we chatted before doing this recording session, you had mentioned that you sort of had some anxiety with your first two kiddos, but you weren't necessarily having it with, with, um, your little girl. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I was never formally diagnosed. I'll start with that. So this is more of a personal and a clinical hunch based on the training I've received. I believe that I had postpartum anxiety. And the reason for that was I really felt it was necessary to control all aspects of my baby's day for almost a year for each child. Mm. And, you know, I think if I didn't have the privilege to stay home, which was afforded to me by my partner at the time, it would have looked very different. I was able to control everything. And I did. And it didn't cause me any hardship. Right. I didn't have to balance more than that. I could prioritize one thing. It seemed to cause everyone else a huge amount of hardship because people wanted to have a bigger role, I think, in taking Mm -hmm. care of the baby, babies. And I said no, because the folks that wanted to do that, um, grandparents, aunts and uncles, would not do things the way I had said, you know, this is how this needs to be done. And, you know, somebody could argue, well, you know, that's on them. That's not on you. But for me, it was an absolute like, no, like you're not going. And I had zero, you know, I I point to the fact that I have aut- uh, I have autism uh, mm-hmm. with this particular. Um, lack of giving a shit if you will it really didn't impact me i was like okay you don't want to do what i'm saying is necessary and so therefore the natural consequence of that is you don't get to spend time alone with the baby but you can come here and hang out and that's fine Mm -hmm. um but you are gonna have to schedule it with me and you can't just drop in and i'm no i'm not going to be guilted into it no you can't you know push your way into my house and no i'm not gonna be like oh wow you drove 45 minutes to get here i guess i should no I lit- I have no, I don't give a shit. You do it my way or you don't do it. 
That's it. Mm -hmm. These are your choices. And it just, I mean, the kind of rage that that brought out in older female relatives. Holy crap. And they weren't really my relatives. It was mostly um, my husband at the time. It was mostly his family, you know, and I don't have to deal with them anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, You know, so that's not my problem. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, I would say the fact that I felt I needed to control everything for my kids when they were babies, I I didn't trust people. Mm. They weren't going to do what I asked. They weren't going to do what I said needed to happen. They weren't going to, for example, they'd skip naps. Mm. So when you say like, what do you mean? They skip naps. They wouldn't feed the things I said to feed or when I said to feed or when I would say, um, like I'm an attachment parent, you know, that's not something that those relatives really understood on an intuitive level. And even if they didn't understand it, they disagreed with it. In fact, I remember some of the things that they said to me when I was pregnant being taken aside and saying, like, I think they were trying to be helpful, but they would say things like, you know, you do not have to breastfeed. Don't let anybody make you think you have to. And I was like, thank you. That's very helpful. Like, I appreciate that because it's true. You don't have to do that. That's if it's not for you, it's not for you. You know, it's nobody's goddamn business. That's such a personal right. thing. That's between right. you your doctor and your baby and your partner, if you have one, if you, whatever. That That, that is not for anyone to comment on. But like, she, you know, she was a nurse. So she was trying to, uh, you know, be supportive in that way. And I said, thank you. And I said, but I, I am going to try, you know, especially with my first, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I don't know if my body's going to work in that particular way. It's trial and error. Right. And she was like, yeah, well, you know, and, and don't let that baby um, manipulate you. You know, don't let that baby start, you know, you don't have to pick him up every time he cries. You know, babies need to learn they don't run the show. And I was like, well, that's not possible. Babies don't think they, they run the show. They are, no. All there is in their mind is their own needs. And they have one communication and they're going to use it until their need is met. And there's there's nothing more complex to it than that there's no that's not possible mm-hmm. <laughs> i said well actually I'm, I'm planning on again planning on picking up my baby when he cries um as much as i can you know i i'm probably gonna let him hang out for a few minutes sometimes because you know bathroom needs to happen yeah <laughs> there there's things that are needed and and i will do those things but um but other than that, I think that's going to be how I'm going to do this. And it bothered her. And when I really thought about why, I tried to imagine what it might have been like for her. And I can't know really what it was exactly like. I wasn't there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I do know that it was 100% expected that she worked full time at a job where she had to be on her feet during irregular shifts that would have been very long when she had her children and the same went for, and that was a, that was an aunt in law. And the same went for my, my former, former Uh, mother-in-law. She had to work. Those were not options. And here I was with this economic privilege, you know, and so I didn't want to disparage the choices they made in order to feed their families. That's not my business. Right. And I, I have no, interest in making any mom feel that they're doing anything wrong by working you know that was just what my reality was then 
yeah, the postpartum anxiety piece, you know, was also me just very much holding a particular line. Like this is what is going to need to happen. You know, um, I didn't want to leave the house Mm. talking symptoms. I I mean, I, I did for target dates with my next door neighbor who is a wonderful friend and her, (laughs) I would go on target Tuesdays. That was like, honestly, that was, and I was comfortable with her holding my baby Mm -hmm. and maybe three other people. Mm, So you were feeling pretty isolated. That's the thing. I didn't feel isolated. I was, I didn't feel isolated. The way that manifested for me was that I was alone happily with my baby all the time for a year. And I was totally cool with it. And then I did it again. And it was less happily because now I had a toddler and a baby. So that's when I started taking medications to assist with that feeling of overwhelm. Okay. But no, I was fine. Everybody else wasn't. Why can't we just drop over Mm. and turn your house upside down with all of our kids? You know, there was someone who came, uh, another in-law relative who showed up with like, I don't know if it was like two kids or three. It felt like a ton of kids. I bet you it was only two kids. In hindsight now, I was such a weenie, (laughs) total weenie. But like, you know, they showed up and there was like a loud toddler running around. And I just remember them like just going through my cabinets and just taking cereal out and giving that to their toddler. And I was like, what is happening? Why are you in my house? Who let you in? Like, I just, I remember being very annoyed and, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess I was kind of bitchy. I mean, I don't, I don't, it, yeah, I guess, but, but that's what it looked like for me. And so in hindsight, yeah, that was postpartum anxiety. Yeah. In hindsight, that's what that was. Did I feel anxious? No. No, but you had, you had this sense of needing to control every well, single teeny tiny aspect of everything in your life. I don't know if it was teeny tiny. It wasn't super duper granular. It was like, to me, it was okay. the important things. Naps. Okay. <laughs> well, naps are a very right. important thing. So like, to some extent, I'm kind of like, how much was I gaslit about? You know, like I told you, that, yeah. was a, that, was, that was an abusive relationship. So to some extent, I'm kind of wondering, but I did feel the need to just opt out of anybody else's opinion, mm-hmm. except my pediatricians, who I love. Um, I actually kind of grossed out by it, but I actually wrote a book, an <laughs> ebook about it. Uh, yeah, you were saying that. Yeah. And it was after my second uh, child. Um, I wrote The Zero Fucks Given Mama. And when I did that, <laughs> it was very much couched in that sort of absolute certainty that like, no, I know better than you. And you're not going to make me doubt myself. And you guys can all go jump in a lake. Like it's not or go fly a kite, whatever. Like <laughs> I'm not making like light of, you know, but no, I totally get it. I totally get it. But that's where you were at. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've mentioned it a couple of times. And for listeners who may not be familiar, can you explain attachment parenting? Oh, God, I can try. I'm, I'm gonna- <laughs> Or your version of attachment parenting. So my understanding of attachment parenting is that this is something that is globally done in many communities, um, and isn't called anything. It's just parenting. Um, but Mm -hmm. it's not common, um, until, you know, maybe the last 10, 15, 20 years, um, in the West. And the idea, you know, around it kind of came, became more mainstream in the United States when the baby book was published by Dr. Sears. Um, Mm. And I don't know the exact year that was, I could Google that, but I don't know. Um, It's okay. (laughs) uh, But it, the idea is that you're following 
these attachment promoting behaviors, APBs. And that's, you know, the attachment that you have to your child, to your baby. And it's, it goes beyond bonding, right? Because you hear like, oh, did you bond when you, when the baby, you know, the baby came, oh, so-and-so didn't bond. It was very frustrating. I didn't bond. I had a difficult time. You know, there's lots of talk of this. This goes beyond bond. This is a type of relationship where you're getting the same measure of oxytocin, which is that emotional intimacy uh, inducing, what's the word I'm looking, endorphin. Endorphin. Okay. So the idea is that if you're doing these attachment promoting behaviors, you are feeding that stream of oxytocin for both you and baby. And Mm -hmm. what that does is it creates a calm, a trust, um, the ability to uh, anticipate the baby's needs a little bit better. You're highly Mm -hmm. attuned. Yeah, there's there's a spectrum here of this. Uh, you know, there's definitely a spectrum of folks who engage in AP attachment parenting. Um, but some of those, those attachment promoting behaviors, if I was going to say what they are. So one of them is breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly if you can extend it a little bit, you know, whatever that means for you, then there's, uh, uh, bed sharing Mm -hmm. where the baby sleeps in the bed with you, which is a very controversial topic. Um, it is, you know, that's a very controversial topic. There's a lot of conversations, um, about safe sleep. The American association of pediatrics has taken, taken a stance against bed sharing. Um, but there are also, there are factors that can be controlled that make bed sharing safer. If Mm -hmm. you're going to, you know, engage in that by controlling those aspects, um, and and managing them appropriately, it it can be a far riskier situation. And so, you mm-hmm. know, doing that very mindfully and intentionally, yeah, it it's not going to be a high level of risk. There is always risk involved. There's risk involved in anything. Right. And there's been some really interesting research done on the way that a mother curls next to a baby when she's breastfeeding in bed and how the baby and the mom can co-regulate one another's breathing and heartbeat. So there's some information about how that can help reduce incidences of SIDS because SIDS has been tied to stop breathing episodes. You know, this is just, you know, I am not a doctor. I, this is what I have read. This is what I understand. This is what has worked for me. This is not, mm-hmm. you know, the truth with a capital T. Um, so it's really important that, you know, I'm not saying that this is the way to be, or, you know, if I'm interpreting the evidence that I've understood um, incorrectly, I'm open to um, empathic, supportive Uh, um you know i don't always read everything right of course but but this is what i've experienced and so bed sharing is one of these these apbs attachment promoting behaviors and then um baby wearing you know whether that's a sling or a soft structured carrier or one of those moby wraps that is like origami to me i can never figure i know i (laughs) i can't do them i can't figure them out they are so those are three of the attachment promoting behaviors. One of the ones that definitely uh, is is 
harder, I think, to um, hold the line as a new parent is beware of baby trainers. Hmm. And that's people who want to train the baby. Ah, yes. Yeah. Like sleep training and like, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't judge mothers who do what they need to do to survive. I also really struggle with the idea of crying it out. Mm -hmm. There is some evidence that shows that that can be, can be, is not always, can be harmful to the uh, centers of the brain that deal with um, attachment, whether Mm -hmm. or not you will be listened to when you cry. Now, of course, you know, if this is happening one time a day at bedtime, for example, versus, you know, every single time it's time to sleep, they're different. There's many different iterations of this. So I, I can't, you know, say something disparaging about a mom who engages in this in their own way. There's different methods of this, but cry it out is not for me. We'll just say that. Right. So beware of baby trainers. Um, And that's also that whole, like, don't pick up the baby too much when they cry or they'll learn that they can manipulate you. That's, that's also. Yeah. That's a tough one for me. I I can relate with that. I, I can't, I can't leave a baby crying. Right. When you can pick them up, it's like, I'm here. I've got you. You're fine. Mm-hmm. I can help you. I know there's more. They call them the baby bees. Beware of baby trainers, bed sharing, breastfeeding, baby wearing. You get, you get, there's, there's a couple more, but you get the idea. It's, it's meant to help that endorphin to continue to pump through your body. And the interesting thing about that is that it makes for me the time I'm with my baby satisfying, probably because I'm high. I mean, I, I think that's what it is. It, it, there are people who, you know, are addicted to medications that give you a, a sliver of this feeling. So, or maybe I have a sliver of that. I don't know. But like, I know it's that that sense of emotional intimacy. It's right. so huge. And I think I'd lose my mind parenting babies if I didn't get that. I honestly don't like, I can't fathom doing this without that. And that's very selfish of me. I will fully like, I, yep. Well, you do what works for you. Yeah, I just I can't I can't imagine how overstimulated and frustrated and annoyed I would feel. I mean, I, I have those feelings, but I feel like I would be over, I would be in a bad way. I don't feel like I would be totally okay without that steady stream of um, of feel good chemicals that that those particular behaviors engender for me. Yeah, so I. That's, that's, that's attachment parenting, I think, in a nutshell, from what I understand. And you did that with your boys and you're doing it again with your little girl. That's correct. Yeah. And that's awesome that that works for you. And that was a great explanation of it, I think. (laughs) And it's interesting because I think it's a lot of the things that new parents do without thinking about it. Probably. But then there are also parents that struggle with that sort of thing. Like I struggled with my first, I definitely didn't want a bed share. I wanted her to be close to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did the like sidecar thing, yeah. but I was like, I cannot share my bed. Like I, I won't sleep. And I'm still that way with my kiddos today. If, if either 
of my kids are in bed with me, I'm awake all night. And I don't know, I don't know if it's like a fear thing. I don't know if it, I don't know what it is. But for, for someone like me, like that, that just isn't something that works for me. But I think that it, a lot of the other things and, and bed sharing for a lot of families are things that you just do unconsciously without thinking about it. Um, and it makes sense if it's providing you with those endorphins that are helping you connect with your baby. And some of those things were some things that we suggested in our weekly theme series last really? week, like baby wearing. Never- yep, baby wearing was one of the things we suggested. And um, skin to skin as often as possible and things like that. So they are ways to help you. Like you said, that it goes beyond bonding, but it is a good, it's a good step into at least bonding right. with baby. Do you find that as your boys are getting older, that you're seeing the benefits of those early days of attachment parenting style in the relationship that you have with them now? Yeah. Yeah. And that's wild. Yeah. Tell me a little more about that. That is wild. So the first glimmer I saw of it having a practical impact that assisted them was during the divorce between um, their father and I, which, you know, I I don't comment on that publicly much. It will just say very high conflict. There were times where I was very worried, wondering, what do they think of me? You know, they were Mm. apart from me, you know, at various intervals more than they ever had been. Um, You know, we have a 50-50 custody and I'd had them pretty much all the time. You know, their grandparents had taken them uh, towards the end of that um, on weekends and such. And that was tremendously helpful. But, you know, he was working. He wasn't doing anything untoward, but he was working. And so to be without them for, you know, more than a few days, especially initially, was heart-wrenching. And I could guess that it was heart-wrenching for them i didn't want it to be but i guessed it would be Mm -hmm. um and what ended up happening was i had conversations with them after because they were three and four and a half at the time Mm -hmm. i've had conversations with them you know when they were grade school age and said what was that like for you you didn't have the words to tell me then what was that like for you and I remember my eldest at one point saying, I wasn't sure you would come back, but my body knew you would. Wow. Right? When we think about things like trauma and, you know, how the body holds trauma, you know, if you've ever read Vanderkolk, um, The Body Keeps the Score, that's sort of like a seminal book on on that psychosomatic uh, trauma. The inverse can also be true, apparently. And I hadn't ever considered that that it could be a protective factor during trauma the body yeah. can hold on to maybe years and years of close nurturing where the trust had already been established you know there's i, I want to say it's erickson's stages of development i could be totally misquoting that but the idea that between the ages of zero and three what you learn is trust or not and that's it mm-hmm. that is what you learn that is your primary task to learn trust to move forward and it was interesting to me that he he 
genuinely felt that his body still felt connected to me through time and space. And that, oh my God, I wept. Not in front of him. I mean, I would have lost it immediately. That is so profound. I was like, Jesus Christ. I, I couldn't believe that that had had such an impact on him. And, you know, my oldest and I, we intuit one another, we get each other, we look across a room, make a weird face, and an entire sentence has been said between us. It has always been right. my youngest and I, or sorry, my youngest boy, my middle child. <laughs> I'm getting used to that. My middle child, my, my youngest boy. Um, him and I don't always understand each other verbally. And so our primary language has always been a physical one. And we've had to lean on that. Um, and so, you know, there are things like um, lying with him before he goes to sleep at night, um, back scratches, that sort of thing, where he needed that and still needs that sometimes um, for a much more extended period, because that is the love language he needs from me. And that's how we come mm-hmm. to communicate presence and love for one another. Do you find that your boys are able to connect with your daughter now in a way that is almost like an attachment style because they've experienced that from you? Um, I'm not sure. I think it, I, it's, I want them to have an organic relationship that's not foisted on them. And so mm-hmm. I'm very cautious about placing them in any sort of position where they have to watch over her. I mean, she's seven months old too. It's not like she's a toddler or anything, but right. I get that sense a little bit from my middle child, my younger son, a little bit, you know, he can hold her and not panic if she cries and know that that's okay. And that's normal. And he's still holding her and you know that, yep, it can hurt your ears for a minute. You know, if I'm home in the house taking something hot out of the oven, for example, that'll be the kind of thing he'll he'll hold her for that. Or if I need to run upstairs and get something, whatever, vacuum a room and I can't get her in the carrier. There's a number of things, but he loves to hold her. Um, I don't know if they're going to develop in that way. I don't expect them to be nurturing right now. I really need them to focus on themselves. So they're mm-hmm. super... Um, attuned to people outside of them. And that's the age that they're at too right now. Yeah, they're nine and 10 and hopefully they'll get to that place. But um, I do notice, you know, say we're driving and my oldest is in the back seat with her and she starts crying. He will intuitively lean over and say, Hey, what's going on? Are you okay? And sort of attend in that way and see that as an opportunity to help support the need of the baby you know, mm-hmm. like, I'm here for you. How can I help you? And I appreciate that instead of jumping to an annoyed response immediately, which would be a very normal thing for a child to do. Very normal thing for a child to be like, yes. geez, you're loud. Could you knock it off? Good Lord. Come <laughs> make it stop. <laughs> you know, and it's not to say that we don't all wince when she shrieks, you know, but I try to model like, oh my goodness, that's really loud. If you need to leave the room, if you would like to, you know, we actually built them bedrooms in advance of her coming. Um, so that they wouldn't have to share the room right next to her nursery. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. So they're actually on a different floor now, so they don't have to listen to that. Um, And that's also because I wanted to make sure they got the sleep they need and had some space of their own. So we'll see. It remains to be seen, but, you know, I'm not too worried about it. They seem to respect me when I need to do those things. It's, they don't, roll their eyes or whatever, or give me a hard time about bed sharing or 
or breastfeeding. Um, you know, I try to do so relatively discreetly, but I do breastfeed in front of them. It's yeah. I'm just trying to make sure that, you know, the bulk of Mount St. Boob is, uh, <laughs> is protected from view. Yes. No need to give the child psychologist any more fodder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that you need to get to your little one. So my final question for you would be, if you could go back in time and tell yourself anything about your life as a mother to sort of help you get through, what would you tell yourself? It's going to sound very self-absorbed. That's okay. You're right. That's it. Simple as that. You're right. And I think, you know, I would have in the, in the few moments that I think I had more moments in their like preschool years, you know, toddlerhood and preschool years where I worried if I was doing things right. If, you know, that's where the doubt crept in. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I, I think I handled it correctly. I always placed emotional well-being and connection above everything else. And, you know, that didn't mean kids didn't get punished. That didn't mean that they got what they wanted every time. That didn't mean that, you know, an egregious act was met with, oh, poor baby. Right. It meant that the egregious act always had some kind of a follow-up in addition to whatever age-appropriate consequence was needed there to hold the line. You know, there was always some sort of check-in, like, what's going on with you? You're not an angry kid. Why are you acting so angry? Are you feeling yeah. a certain way? Can we talk about that? No, you're still not going to get screens for the next three days. You know, like, it was still, <laughs> there's, there's still very much a punishment here. But what's going on with you? You know, this doesn't feel like you. And so there was yeah. always that connection and that sense of checking in and concern for well-being. And that never ever has has I've never compromised that and I'm proud of that that's great I think moms that's awesome know. I think moms know moms know I do yeah. and I, I I just hope that the the moms that I worry about are the ones who have older moms around them telling them this is how things are gonna be for you because mm. how things were for them yep and it's not and every experience is different right and they were probably doing the right thing for them too I'm not suggesting either otherwise it's, uh, you know, we just, we can't dictate to each other. This is how this has to go. I don't feel. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love that. I love that for you. I do. <laughs> I love that journey for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just like that you can confidently tell yourself like you were right. Yeah, You were right. So I will let you get to your little one. Thank you. But I greatly appreciate you telling your story. Thanks for having me on. Of course. And um, last this. So for listeners, um, this is a two parter. We had to do this in two parts. So I hope you enjoyed your Mother's Day. And I hope you enjoy your birthday today. Yay. Thank you. I will. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Have a good one, Chelsea. Thank you again to Leah for being so flexible in our recording and for sharing her experiences through parenting two older boys and now her youngest little girl. If you want to follow along with us on Quiet Connection, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Quiet Connection or at Quiet Connection Podcast. A great way to show your support for our community is to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and consider sharing our episodes through social media. And if you'd like to share your personal journey, you can reach us through our website, 
quietconnectionpodcast.com or by email at quietconnectionppmh at gmail.com. Join us next time where another story is told and you realize you are not alone. I see you.